have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline. But on the Che Guevara Highway, filling up with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over the luxury's disappointment. So he walks over and he's trying to sympathize with her. But he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner. Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell at the first hurdle. only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer and someone asking questions and basking in the light of the 15 fame-filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics he asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment for my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the right leap forward Hello and welcome to the 90 Minute Cynic podcast um, It's our... Featured podcast, we've got an illustrious panel, Christopher Sermani. Good evening. Good to hear from you. Um, we've got Daniel McGowan. Hello. Making his debut. Yes. Wearing a Smiths t-shirt. What's your favourite Smiths song? Um, I know it's over. Aye, but what's your favourite Smiths song? I mean, I know they, they broke up years ago. <sighs> That's actually one of the best jokes I've ever that is That was quite good. That's not bad. Terrific. Liam McLaughlin. Is it McLaughlin? McLaughlin? No, McLaughlin, you're right. First McLaughlin, time. yeah, of course, I'm always right. Um, Liam, your favourite band and the song that... My favourite band is also the Smiths. Oh, favourite Smith song? Headmaster Ritual. Terrific. And we've got, as always, the, um, the master of ceremonies when it comes to the feature podcast, Christian Wolf. Thank you, Gal. My favourite artist is Ryan Adams. I'm, there. I'm, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm proud of it. That's Ryan, not Brian, by the way. Um, but yeah, thank you, Gal. Uh, it's the first feature slash supplement uh, podcast. So obviously the supplement is our bi-monthly online magazine. Um, Where can you get it? At 90 How much does it cost? It's free, Sir Manny. Quality content. Does it free. come in PDF form? Glad you asked, Dan. Shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Because it will in a couple of days. So we released the fourth edition on 90 Minutes Cynic about two weeks ago. Um, Keith McGinty has been working hard uh, on putting together a, put it in a PDF format. So we will have that ready for a download in a couple of days on the site. That's an online magazine. So we thought we're also going to have after each edition, we'll, we'll have a little podcast. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the themes and we'll uh, get some of the writers on as well. 
So this podcast <coughs> will be um, specifically Christian driven. Um, he's going to be the guy leading the the, the charge. Um, we're looking at being a looking at politics and football, um, how it intertwines, why it's important, um, what our kind of personal kind of thoughts on it are, and uh, yeah. But before we do that, before I hand over to the wonderful Christian Wolf, he's so handsome and he loves Ryan Adams. Um, the Champions League draw was made. Um, it was made mere hours ago. Celtic have been drawn with Bayern Munich, um, Paris Saint-Germain and Anderlecht. Chris Romani, thoughts on the draw briefly? Mouth-watering. Um, what, your, what do you think our chances will be? Uh, I think we will. it would be a difficult task to qualify. Depends on our home form. If we can recreate, I mean last season's home form wasn't particularly strong, but if we can recreate some of the famous nights we've had at Celtic Park, we've got a slim chance of going through, but I think our aim should be to get the better of Anderlecht over two legs, and I, I think we could we could get a Europa run. Um, Daniel, yourself? Um, I think there's been a lot of bravado going into this season, um, but then we need to remember that we didn't win a game in our group last season, so I think yeah. like the, last, uh, the last 32, the Europa League, was a kind of realistic aim, and I think we can... I'm not saying I don't like they're going to be easy, but I think we can, you know, definitely give that one a go. I think it's going to be easy. Um, Liam, thoughts? I think it's a great draw. It's a few teams that we've, we've not played in a wee while, thankfully. It was looking yeah. likely we were going to get Barca again, uh, so thankfully we've avoided them. And the last two managers that's won a treble also took us to a European final. So where is the Europa League final this year? I don't know, but I know where the Champions League <laughs> final is. So it's in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's mouthwatering destination for the Champions League final. Um, I personally just can I give my political as well. I, I think it's a shut up about politics and football's got no place. Um, my my thoughts on the draw is I think it's terrific. I think it's a really good. Um, I'm glad we didn't get any English teams because see the whole Battle of Britain stuff and oh you know and then there's whole comparisons between the Scottish League and the English League it's just tiresome and I'm I'm just glad we don't have that um, I think that potentially political game political, political. Okay, hold, hold on a minute Politics and football, is that a thing? Um, but no, we will cover the Champions League um, from our, the weekly podcast, which comes out every Monday or Tuesday. Um, and, you know, we have you know, 90minutesynic.com and uh, at 90minutesynic uh, on Twitter. Um, I'm going to hand you over to your Master of Ceremonies. He's, uh, he's Norwegian. He's handsome. He wears a polo shirt like no human being I've ever seen in my entire life. God bless him. God love him. It's Christian Wolf. Thank you for that understated introduction, uh, Gal. I also want to put in that Rosenberg is 1-0 up against Ajax at halftime. So, yeah, Norwegian football on the up. So thank you very much, everybody, um, for coming. Uh, I think we, what we're going to do today, as Gal said, we're going to talk a little bit about politics and football. Uh, I, but we're also going to mention shortly some of the other articles that has been on the supplement um, this edition. Worth to mentioning the, the front page. Matt Johnson at Matt J Design who do all our front pages. Um, I think they get better and better each time. He does a wonderful homage to the Lisbon Lions uh, in the last edition, and this one. Um, check it out on our Twitter account tonight as well. It's a picture of the Green Brigade and the Hearts game last season um, with the pyro up. No party, no pyro, uh, and Tom Roger in the front. With a quote from the Green Brigade statement. Sorry, sorry, can you sorry to jump in? What did you say? 
What did they say? No party, no pidle? <laughs> I think that might be the... You've got I, that. I think that's the, the right way around. I'm pretty sure that's right. Okay, I apologize. Okay. Uh, a quote from the Green Brigade saying, we will never allow our style nor our politics to ever be diluted. So keep that quote in mind uh, for a little bit later when we talk about especially the Green Brigade and Celtic and, and politics. But just wanted to mention shortly some of the other Celtic articles in the supplementers edition. We have... I have a good friend, Andy Dugan, the author, Andy Dugan. So he's been we, he's been giving us an extract from his Lisbon Lines book uh, for every edition uh, this year. Uh, in this issue, it's come to the quarterfinals against Voivodina. They're worth checking out because Andy did uh, always like a full book on this uh, a few years ago. And there's some quotes and some original quotes in there and some background on the Lisbon Lines uh, campaign that you probably won't get anywhere else. We had another first-time debutant, Rory Price. Rory Price six on Twitter. That was his first article. I, I'll, I'll divulge here that he, this is actually the article from the first uh, this edition that's got the most hits. Uh, I think it really struck a chord with a lot of people. Is about Celtic and Villarreal connection and how Celtic's game against Villarreal, um, I think it's about 10, 12 years ago now, really shaped that friendship and the relationship with the two clubs. Check that out. Um, we got Lee McKeon. Um, McKeon? How do you pronounce Scottish name? I know, I'd only been here 16 years. Uh, McKeon92 on Twitter. He's uh, written by Emilio Izagiri and his life and times uh, at Celtic. And we have our resident historian, Graham McKay, uh, Pod- Pedestrian G on Twitter, uh, talking about the pre-season of discontent How in 2004. 16 years. <laughs> <laughs> Graham McKay. <laughs> McKay. It's Mackay. That's the Is it really? It's Mackay. It's Mackay. Yes, Fair Mackay. Enough. Pre-season of discontent, 2004-05. Samarani, you, you must have been about 30 then. Uh, what do you remember from the pre-season after Henrik Larsson left? You, you can't do jokes, um, man. It doesn't it The doesn't pre-season work. after Henrik Larsson left, uh, the utter despair at uh, signing Henri Kamara on loan. I think that's what everybody remembers. And Graham McKay yeah. talks about that, especially in his, his story as well. The last article I'm going to mention now is, is Tony McHugh, Ron Cornselt on Twitter. Um, Tony does a column in terms of looking at some of Celtic's less illustrious um, European opponents through the time. Uh, there's just lots of good YouTube footage on uh, Tony's articles as well. This time he looks at uh, Rapid Vienna. The 1984 Cup Winners' Cup clash. Um, what happened that night where Rapid was performed, where they've ended up since then. But I think we're going to move smoothly over to our main topic. The reason why we've invited these two gentlemen as well, a splendid in red on uh, opposite me on the couch. Um, because the main theme of the, the supplement this time was football and politics and it kind of was very good timing in terms of everything that came out from the Linfield game uh, a few couple of weeks ago in terms of the Green Brigade banner and so on. And really, I think for a lot of us, puts in perspective what Celtic should be about, what was Celtic in politics, should there be any politics inside Celtic Park, and in general, you know, football and politics, football and sport, really. So we wanted to... Uh, and, you know, this is something that I think Gal and myself wanted to have a, a podcast on for a while as well. So Dan and Liam wrote a couple of, of pieces for us in terms of 
the political political side of of, of sport. I think in, in, in general, for me, I think you always hear this this phrase that sports and politics doesn't mix or shouldn't mix, which for me is is a statement that's not just wrong in terms of you know it should and it's it's it, there's no reason why it shouldn't. But it's also in terms of the history of sport, it's always been very intertwined with politics. In, in every single in, in so different in different ways uh, it's the obvious ones uh, in terms of the nationalism in, in football and you know the, the famous football wars I think with uh, El Salvador um, and Honduras um, but also like different things like amateurism so amateurism is, is you know has been an ideal in sport but the orig- origins of amateurism was babies essentially something to to keep the working classes out of doing sport because um it was a way of for i mean especially the upper classes and, and graduate universities in the turn of the century to to who had the time to train to had the time to actually participate in sport and to mark being paid for participating in short for in sport as something dirty and something wrong so I think there's, there's, there's different ways that football comes in and sports comes into politics in those kind of ways. So, but I wanted maybe start with um, dance piece as well. In in terms of it was coming from the Linfield and what came. Uh, I think your piece very much said it's it's what drives this maybe notion that. Politics shouldn't be involved in in, in sport and this football and Celtic is UEFA, mm-hmm. and in terms of how from want to drive this sanitation of of of, of sport and, and keep politics out of football. Yeah, no, I felt that I, th- I think there's a lot of things, and it's not just in football or sport. I think it's in all media, and I think there's there's a drive towards this concept of taste, of good taste, and we want to, it's, it's a public relations thing, that like we want to be seen in this good light, we don't want to offend people, and uh, I think that that's an overarching thing in a lot of aspects of society, but I think UEFA are, you know, one of the main proponents of that, they're, they're scared that people are going to be offended by one of, something that happens at one of their events, so they're, they'll clamp down based on taste they won't they don't actually clamp down on all political messages i mentioned i'm sure you probably got onto that but i, I mentioned that in my article about they had the, the nelson mandela banner and so they were okay with that but they weren't okay with what celtic were saying which means that they draw a line somewhere and i think that place is this weird concept of taste that we have um in our different societies or like europe i guess and in, in, in the case of uefa so I think that I think that that's where they maybe draw the line. Of, I think it's a public relations issue of, well, we better not let that happen, but we're okay with other things that people are okay with and that won't put us in a bad light, um, yeah. which obviously serves corporate interests. It serves their advertisers who don't want to be associated with a product that they would argue allows, you know, the place of IRA banners or anything, you know, whatever people might deem offensive or, you know, not suitable for sport yeah and i think as you say i whenever surrounding whenever something in terms of political or controversies happen in 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 football or like this the politicians very often comes on board as well but you and i may be a little bit older as well but there's football fans this is as dan is saying that the, the commercialization of football has very much driven 
the way we, we, we football is shaped and especially the experience of going to games. So, but if you go 20, 30 years back, which is um, Ian Coyne had in is right about is this piece in, in the supplement, or he looks at how football and politics, especially in Britain, have the relationship between them has changed over the last 30 years. Because if you go back to the 80s, football, if you think football fans are treated badly now, yeah. football fans in the 80s were basically, <laughs> under the Thatcher government, seen as uh, an enemy within. Absolutely. I mean... As I say, as you say, we're a little bit older, um, so we remember the the fallout from from Heisel and the the ban of English football clubs uh, within Europe. Um, it was football was a, a pariah sport at the time. It was for working class thugs. Um, you did never heard uh, a conservative minister discussing what football team they liked, apart from David Mellor. And I don't think we want to talk about <laughs> David how, Mellor's. How Excuse me, uh, support of a football team. Google that if you're uh, a bit younger than me. Um, <laughs> handsome lad, though. <laughs> David, though, he's right. a handsome lad. Um, but what I'm saying is, it, it was it was a, it was outcast. They were banned from Europe. You know, they had a real problem with hooliganism, and it was kind of castigated by. I wouldn't say the mainstream. That's maybe not fair, but it, it, it was kind of viewed upon as. A, an can, can I jump in for a second? <clears throat> Why was Liverpool banned, and Juventus fans weren't banned? From Heysel. Why were they... Why, was after Heysel. After Heysel. Was it just seen as a... Because the English, the English fans got a, a, a blanket ban. Yeah. But, you know, there was nothing from... Because as far as it was kind of reported, there was fighting on both sides. I think that... Uh, correct me, this might be wrong, but as far as I'm led to believe, it was a culmination of a lot of incidents with English football yeah. clubs over a number of years, as opposed to... Um, the, well, there was obviously issues with hooliganism in Italy, but I don't think it had reached the levels that it did with with the English clubs. You really just interrupted my train of thought that Sorry. I was talking about. Sorry. Bring it back to Hazel. Hazel and, and the Thatcher so, government. So the Thatcher government it was kind of castigated um, uh, as as a kind of a, a, a dirty sport, and then I think you began to see that change when Sky came in and kind of started the Premier League, but. The real turning point for me was 96, when Euro 96 happened in England. Quite funny, to equate it to politics, England, in fact Britain, let's let's be perfectly honest, was on the cusp of a real political change. We just had 18 years of Conservative rule, and there was a wave of optimism throughout the country. Um, when, when Tory Blair's uh, Labour, uh, New Labour Party were about to take power, we know how that worked out, but at the time there was a wave of optimism amongst the working class. That was also coupled with England hosting Euro 96. At that point, it just seemed to spiral for me. It just seemed to spiral into uh, a commercialised product. People who previously wouldn't have paid football much attention now were regularly talking about it. You're hearing, the one that always sticks in my head is Edith Bowman, who is a radio DJ from St Andrews in <laughs> Scotland. And I read an article talking her talking about her undying love for Manchester United. Now, not Wraith Rovers. Not Wraith Rovers. But, now, she may be a genuine Manchester United fan. That's fine, right? I'm not going to... It's up to who she's... She, up to her, who she supports, but somebody in her position, 25, 30 years ago, 
would very unlikely be uh, be talking about what football team they support and gushing over their love for the game. But see, as much as that was that not to do as much <coughs> as what, as much as it was political, was there not a whole cultural shift as well with like you know uh, Britpop and all that? Well, g- yeah, the, the, because all, like you know, the, the Gallagher brothers, I think Manchester City tops like shot up in terms of uh, it, you know sales and stuff like it that. It was a there was a kind of complete change in Britain at that point, and I think Euro '96. It was on the crest of a wave and they kind of brought... It was cool to like football and it got brought up and it was cool to like football and then all of a sudden you had the prawn sandwich brigade as some people would call them. The development of that idea and football lost... Didn't lose its identity. It started to lose its identity as a working class sport. And I think you... Samani, as you say there, I think the culmination of all the things that happened in the 80s in terms of the demonization of... of fans um the policing of them they were basically seen as animals in terms of the, the ground safety and, and the policing of them. And, and obviously that culminated in in hillsborough yeah. and both in terms of the way that the stadium was uh the police treatment the police cover-up uh, and and especially the media's very willing um portrayal of them and then obviously from hillsborough you get the taylor report um which basically says two top tiers in, in, in English football needs to have all-seater stadium. And as Simone says, that comes in at the same time as a political shift slightly later in the 90s, that maybe the the start of Vladism in, in terms of you know a cultural shift as well. And I think from that, you see the way it's, it's basically being turbocharged into the 21st century in terms of how football is viewed and how, you know, while this change in a match going experience from working class, mostly guys, but also uh, girls in, in the 80s, a lot tougher environment, a lot yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, essentially a more working class sport. Uh, and, and then this is... Can, can which, I jump in? Which is to this point, whereas now, where we're especially going to the Premier League, is kind of like going to the theatre. It's, it's something people do once or twice a season is, is very expensive is that the demographic is a lot older uh, and so on so I think when we maybe circle back to the Green Brigade that's where some of the opposition to Green Brigade comes because the Green Brigade 30 years ago wouldn't have raised an eyelid and sometimes they raised an eyelid now for different reasons but well, just I'm going to nip to the toilet very quickly but <laughs> it's hard it's hard to sell a product which is what football's become. It's hard to sell a product when, when you go and see it, there's a good chance you're going to get your head kicked in. Can I make, make one point? Um, you know, you talk about like the turning point and the shift. Remember in the, in the Fast show when um, the guy went to, he's like, oh, I like Arsenal this week. I yeah, like Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Arsenal are losing. Oh, I was at Manchester United last week. And it's kind of like, just as you say, like people who had no interest in football, had no affiliation with any club. because It was just a product. And it's like, well, I don't like this one because it's not doing well. I'll go to this one. And that's kind of, yeah, what it became. I think kind of a, to pull it back just a wee touch in terms of uh, Owen's piece about the kind of a mid eighties and Hillsborough and how that kind of laid the basis for change. I think one of the kind of most important phrases you used there, Christian, I thought was the idea of football fans being almost the enemy within. Because I think what Hillsborough and probably more importantly the cover up uh, Hillsborough subsequently after that showed was just the utter contempt that that government and also elements a kind of a middle and upper class society actually had for working class culture and working class identity and football for me still even amongst the kind of a commercialisation that Dan was talking about and 
the kind of a disgusting amounts of money that's now involved in, in football kind of brought to light recently by the Neymar situation is it for working class people certainly it remains the kind of a last bashing kind of a working class culture that despite their efforts they haven't quite managed to smash completely yet um, so for me that's kind of a where football and the tenets and the politics of the tenets becomes really important yeah I was just that leads on to exactly what I was going to say and to link it to the commercialisation point in, in my article um, quite broadly though I think Something that happens often is that the establishment, if you want to just term it as a general sort of broad thing, um, it swallows anything that's sort of left of field as a whole over time. So I think it happens in music, I think it happens in film, anything that is that is alternative in 20 years is what is kind of mainstream. I think that these things work like that and I think it's, I don't know if it's, I don't know how they, I don't know how they do it, but I think it's it, it does neutralize it by swallowing it as a whole and I think that's kind of what you were saying there Liam, I think that's kind of what's happened to football and kind of what, what Chris was saying as well I think it feels like it's lost its identity because it's been swallowed by the very people who hated it 30 years ago I, I, Sorry, just as I, before I left the room there I heard uh, Liam kind of reiterate the phrase you used, the enemy within obviously that's um, a phrase that was used against the minors and obviously mm-hmm. it's the title of a Seamus Milne book on, on the minors and that's quite an interesting way to look at it. It's almost politically in the mid eighties there was a, a concerted attempt to um, kind of play uh, trample down on the working classes. You had the you had the trade union bill of early nineteen early nineteen nineties. You had the miners' strike. Oh, um, grief as well. Oh, grief. Yep, yep. You had you had. Um, Thatcher's statements about there's you know no such thing as class uh, total individualism and it's almost like they've took aspects of what would traditionally be workers culture and commercialised it it's, I hadn't really thought about that but that's that's maybe something that uh, has came out from, from, from the 80s Yeah and also just to follow on from that one of the kind of key things that New Labour would, would kind of propel uh, when they were in power was that we're all middle class now as though, you know, and, and then I guess that followed on from sort of right to buy scheme and things like that in, under the Tory government. But it felt that everyone should have this aspiration and we should all be sort of amalgamised and swallowed into this one concept that really wasn't, A, wasn't really true, and B, sort of tried to neuter and, and push away anyone who would fight against that. And football, I think, was, was part of the fight against that system anyway. I think you speaks, he talks about, obviously, he's, he's a little bit older as well, and he. You know, he freely admits that when he went to games home and away, maybe late eighties, early nineties, there was a lot more of an, as Dan has mentioned, there was an acceptance that there was more swearing, there were a bit more rebellious. It was a a lot less sanitized around that. But the generation of, of, of people who goes to football games now, when they try to do something like this to maybe show a bit more of, of that kind of behavior, it's 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 seen as something anti-establishment. It's, it's, it's very quickly cracked down on. And this is where I see that, which I still find odd, because from, as we say, from the early 90s up until now, the people who go to football games, especially the top games, has changed completely, you know, in terms of how old they are, how rich they are, and in terms of how they behave at games and how they experience the stadiums. But football fans are still treated very, very differently by the police, often by the media and, and politicians, than people who go to the Commonwealth game in Glasgow, who go to rugby games and so on. 
why do you think maybe come to Liam? Why are there still a stigma against football fan, even though what you know you you'd maybe say even though the demographic has changed and even it's it's more middle class than ever? Is it is that why maybe a group like the Green Brigade is is targeted more because they're seen as something from the past? There's an element of that, but there's also an element of kind of a football supporters in general now being kind of almost divided straight into two. You've got the corporate section, the kind of a more middle class section, and then you've got the working class kind of a general season ticket holder that will save up all year so he can buy a season ticket at the end of the season. And I think what kind of a frightens the board to a degree is the the effect that the Green Brigade can have, particularly on kind of a young younger Celtic fans and more working class Celtic fans as well. I think they realise the pull and the almost the kind of influence that they're having on kind of a people's beliefs as well uh, by so, their actions. And you've kind of come to the now, and, and, and in a way, Celtic board is a board of a big corporation. So in a way, it's it's not their job to be rebellious, you want to say. There, there's It's their job to be professional. Um, you see what happens when a board isn't as professional across town. But they also are, you know, they're in charge of a club, and, and there are... So, but, but it, in, in the sense, they need to be obviously more careful. But I think, especially this season, Celtic Board's relationship with the Green Brigade seems very almost schizophrenic. Because in one way, mm-hmm. they know the Green Brigade is what not what makes the atmosphere in Celtic Park, but especially in league games, Celt- the Green Brigade now gives Celtic something that's pretty much unique in British football. And they're happy to celebrate that and they're happy to push that like we saw um, with the Conor McGregor tweet and so on. But they still want the Green Brigade and certain elements to be within that acceptable norm of a football supporter. So in terms of your money, how do you see that whole relationship that's maybe for the last few years now with the Green Brigade on the board? And you know, it, how, how do they end up in, in, in this way? I think Celtics. One of Celtics' main problems with them is is, is they aren't consistent with them. I mean, if right, playing devil's advocate, they say we don't want you to uh, display certain political banners or certain viewpoints and, and and whatever. You know, that's up to the club to take that standpoint. If they want, they might not be. They might be at odds with the support, but they don't always do it. They they really don't always do it. It's that they're kind of they're not consistent with it. And the other thing that I've said before that really gets my goat is how again we're going back to it commercialisation. I mean, you can go into the Celtic Superstore, or you maybe can't now, but you could, and you could buy a print of the Green Brigade's display against Barcelona when we beat them two one. Now, there are, it's good, you know. Generally, there's a good relationship between the Green Brigade and the club, you know, but. What really upset me about the club was how they, they hung them out to dry, okay? And how they continue to hang them out to dry instead of backing them a bit more, you know? Um, especially when they're, they're happy enough to kind of use some of their, their displays and some of what they bring to Celtic Park to sell it. Yeah, well, I mean, what I would say is um, y- you'll have people on, like, you know, <coughs> social media is just a small minutia of what the whole support is, right? But it gives, again, a good dipstick in terms of, you know, you know, a broad view. Um, and so after the Green Brigade, you know, the ban and stuff, there was a lot of people who, if you look through their tweets, they would talk about how, look at that, look at that banner. 
Look at the banner we've put up. Look at us. We look at the support and uh, see see the the atmosphere within Celtic Park. It's the best in the world. And then, aye, Green Brigade, aye, they've went too far. They went. It's not. No, it's not good enough. They've went. So it's like a complete. Instead of just being like, who are making that support? Who are making that noise? Why are they doing it? And what does it mean from an overall grand scheme of things? As opposed to just. Ah, I read something in the Daily Record and it says it's no good. So, ah, you know, it's and I'm not. I'm not. My point is, people need to have their own views and opinions. That's absolutely fine. But the fact is, you can't turn around one point and say the atmosphere at Celtic Park is phenomenal on Champions League nights, and then turn around when Rosenberg and there's no atmosphere and the team are playing terribly, and turn around and go, oh, why the why have we not fucking played well? Just. Sorry guys, I just want to interject there. That's a great point, because what I've heard from some people on Twitter is, oh, before the Green Brigade, we had fantastic atmospheres at Champions League nights. Yeah, we did. But we didn't have fantastic atmospheres against Kilmarnock on a Wednesday night. Yeah. yeah. Now, the Green Brigade are responsible for lift. I mean, even when the new was here, some of the atmospheres for standard league games were, it was like a library. Yeah. It was just routine boringness. I, l- let me jump in for a second. I had a season ticket. Can I shut us up? Can I shut us up? Yeah. The guests here, we I need know. to bring their opinions <laughs> in. I don't give a fuck about these guys. Um, no, I'll, I'll, you just, shouldn't. You I'll, I'll just quickly, can you shut your fucking mouth? Um, no, well, one thing I would say is I had a season ticket at Hamden. So did I? Yeah, um, and I remember we lost to uh, Partick Thistle three one. Peter Grant's going the goal, and I remember now that was when I was kind of just coming into the idea of like idea of season tickets and going every week, and that 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 was. Oh. Then O'Neill come, you know, obviously we, we had the Vengos and all that, but when O'Neill came in, it was kind of like it was kind of like now. But see if we had the Green Brigade then, I think we could have done. We could have done. More. The atmosphere was great under Martin Neal. The atmosphere was terrific. We got so many amazing results. But see if we had those guys doing that in the co- and by the way, I've I've consistently criticized the Green Brigade on this podcast since the very, very start. But I will put my hands up and say, just like you know, a lot of times, I'm happy to be proved wrong. One hundred percent. One hundred percent happy to be proved wrong. If we had the Green Brigade doing what they do now back then could we have got better results? Who knows? But the point is, they would have added something that we didn't have back then. I think anybody that was at the Rosenberg game in comparison to the Astana game in terms of the home game, I know it's another round on in terms of the qualification phase, but the difference in the atmosphere was night and day. It wasn't just ever so slightly. I mean, there was a, there was an effort by the folk who were left in the standing section to generate an atmosphere. And you've also got the other guys up in the, the corner uh, of the boys, stand, the boys, boys as well. Um, they were also trying to chip in and create an atmosphere, but it's night and day. So, so Dan, in, in terms of your piece, I think you talk a little bit about the attitude to the Green Brigade uh, among Celtic fans at the moment seems to be either you're for them or you're against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and also with the added shut up, shut up on either side. Like, you know, I th- I, but I feel that I, I don't think you have to, you don't want you have to fall down on either side. I, and I deliberately sort of tried not to on my article. I tried not to say really what the content of the banner, like, I don't really think that that mattered. It's the fact that, that it's being clamped down on that was what my article was all about. Um, I feel like people have this weird perception that the Green Brigade, when they have a banner, like, it reminds me of when you were, you know, when you were at school and you would go on a school trip and you'd be wearing the uniform and they'd say, 
don't misbehave because if you misbehave then you're wearing the uniform of the school and you know you're letting the whole school down and it's like well i mean if you go into europe there are clubs that have an ultras group on what i went i was lucky enough to go to a marseille game this season and they have one ultras group on one side and one ultras group on the other and i think they have they have more but um that and and they have opposing well, not opposing, but they have varying politics, they have varying views on different things, and I think sometimes they may be falling into conflict with the club or with each other. But it's why why does one group have to represent? Why does one group of nine hundred people have to represent the support as a whole anyway? Like, why does it? You know, because unless you are in the Green Brigade, then you know you weren't responsible for the banner. You probably didn't even know it was going to happen until you were standing there on the ground looking at it. So I think it's a bit strange that people feel as though they have to fall down on one side or fall down on the other and and get right behind the group. Just let them be. So, so Liam, I think what you often hear about the Green Brigade is and anything else in terms of political statements. Uh, football is, is you should just be about the football. You know, you should just concentrate about football, support the team, and just concentrate on that. Which kind of leads me to the question: Is Celtic Football Club about winning games and winning trophies? Well, in terms of if you're looking at Celtic on, on the football pitch, then yes, yeah. of course. But Celtic as a, as a club right. and as an institution means it certainly means more to me anyway, and I think it means more to probably most of the guys that contribute to the pod, if not all, and I would say probably most, if not all, of the supporter base as well. Celtic is an institution, and that's part of what makes it so special to, to us, and which part of what I think makes it one of the most recognisable clubs in the world is the aspect beyond Cause, football. Because surely if you say we're more than a club, your, your, your first priority, or it's you know the first point of the club shouldn't be about winning things, it shouldn't be about winning football games. It should be about something else. Now, I don't think any everybody have to agree about what that is, but in terms of why Celtic was founded and where it comes from, it's a specific purpose. But that also, you can't take that away from the politics of the time. Can, can I jump in for a second? Um, <clears throat> if you want to support a football club, um, does it come about geographically? Does it come because um, you live right beside it? Because I live in the south side of Glasgow. I'm, clo- I think I'm closer. I think we're all probably closer to Rangers in terms of Ibrooks. Oh, except Liam, of course. And oh, fuck it, I am right. I'm probably closer to Ibrooks than I am to to Celtic Park. Um, I Celtic is is more than a football club um, in terms of how it goes up. Like for example, the fact that the banner that they had up um, for Glasgow Pride at the weekend. Um, that that to me represents what Celtic is as a football club. It's mo- it is more. It, it it does a social aspect to it. It's responsible. It stands up for people. It stands up for the disenfranchised. It stands up for, and I'm not maybe maybe not the club, maybe just the support. But the fact is, what we support is more than just eleven guys on the pitch. Eleven guys on the pitch is why we go, but we congregate together because we are. Maybe the the people disenfranchised a little bit, but it's not even that. It's about anyone is welcome at Celtic as a football club, and that's to me why I support support them because it, it follows my political ideology, my social ideology, and everything about it. And also, Kieran Tierney. Only goes No, I was just laughing. I'm saying <laughs> Kieran Tierney. It, it does raise an interesting point, but as you say, Celtic should be a club open for all. And presumably that should also mean fans of every supporters of pretty much every every political party. But can you say that Celtic as an institution, there is certain political belief that at least contravene the spirit and the ideal of the club? The fulcrum of our support 
probably will all come from working class, a working class background in Glasgow, who would probably have, if not socialist politics, certainly left leaning. However, there'll be people who don't subscribe to that ideology who support us. I mean, I don't imagine Rod Stewart supports a top rate attacks <laughs> of eighty pence, you know. But that's fine, right? That's fine. If you ask me, it's fine. But the fulcrum, the most, the, the majority of our support should come from that background. There's always going to be people that don't tick every box, but we can't see we're a club open to all and then say no. Yeah, yeah. You can't. Yeah. You can't see it. But at the same time, if our, if the, the, the support began to, you know, eventually, as if it's going to happen, but seventy five percent of them were right wing. Uh, uh, neoliberal Tory supporters, then they wouldn't mean the same to us. They, they, that that wouldn't happen. But if there are, there are people who subscribe to, to, to they've got those political beliefs. Do you know what I mean? They aren't going to f- form the majority, but it's but it's but it's fine. You but, know, it's that they can come. They're they're welcome. But they need to also respect that the majority of people in the stadium aren't going to subscribe to the same things. There seems to me in in political scene in Scotland and, and the football <coughs> in, in Glasgow, there seems to be at least a lot of people wants to. S- prescribed to the notion that there's now a hardening of lines in terms of if you support this club, you support this political leaning. And we have a piece in the supplement here from a range of supporters. So if, if you're quite active on Twitter, you, you, you probably come across him. But he's, he's a range of supporter that supports Scottish independence. And, and, he, and, he, and he talks about how that is and how the, from that club seems to now, especially over the last couple of years, seems to be a hardening to especially anti-independent a club which I viewed often as quite a, a labour club as well, arranges it seems to be now a, a movement maybe more over to, to, to the Tories, which is, is a huge general generalisation. But I think at now, at this point in terms, of especially independence referendum, it's, it's almost like, and maybe this is because of the way Glasgow is and stuff, that if one side seems to be that, the other side needs to identify with the opposite. And, and that's where I kind of... I'm a little bit in terms of I agree with you in terms of Celtic seems to be a club that was that came from a specific political situation with a specific ideal and p- specific purpose, and those kind of ideas maybe congregate more around the left side of politics as we know it. But then again, should we be annoyed and angry that there was a, a Tory Lord on the Celtic board? For me, yes. Um, as much as I agree with Samari and that I won't agree with every Celtic supporter's political leanings either, I think you have got to respect that the vast majority of our supporter base does come from that kind of a background that Samari was saying. And for me to have somebody like the Tory Lord Livingston that was on the board to be in that position of authority and influence in terms of representing Celtic across the country and across the world, that is a kind of a direct contradiction and I would go almost as far as saying that it's a kind of a affront to the history of the club and the, the background of the club and its formation in the first place, which was a club obviously formed to, to help the poor and particularly those of the Irish diaspora that settled in the west of Scotland. I agree. Um, however, I think what we need to understand is the board are not the club. That's... Everybody and anybody that sits on Celtic's board, they are the custodians of the finances of the club. Other than that, they do not embody what Celtic is. Now, I agree. I don't want. I don't want Tory Lords on our board, but the board to me is separate from the club. It's so. 
as long as as long as the spirit and the soul of the club remains intact, I'm not going to get too annoyed about it. Although it didn't sit well with me having been on the board, you know. And and I think that's maybe where my frustration with this comes because I see, as you say, the a board <coughs> of a big PLC, which is what Celtic is in, in one way. They can't really be anti-establishment and rebellious because they, they they're beholden to the shareholders. Which is, and you want that board to be, you want them to be quite professional and business-like because you know you don't want them to to run the club into ground, which can't happen uh, with big clubs in Glasgow. I believe you're right. Huh? But in terms of that, so that's how I see the Green Brigade in terms of Celtic. I've seen in, in the ideal and the spirit of it is quite something that pushes the establishment barriers. That is a bit rebellious. And for me, right now, as we talked about a bit about the last 10, 15, 20 years, and especially since the 80s and the commercialization of football, the Green Brigade for me is to now is the clearest example of somebody who drives, and you have the foundation as well, which I, you know, and, and, and a lot of charity work that goes around that. So I, I think that's a huge part of it, but also Green Brigade in terms of maybe pushing those establishment boundaries, being rebellious and pushing. The, the limits of taste, as, as Dan has said as well. For me, I don't see any other supporter groups that kind of it, it keeps that kind of political flame in Celtic alive. Going back to the the pride thing that Gal was uh, was yeah. talking about the banner for pride and, and Saturday. I think that was particularly relevant given that there's a lot of media focus recently saying that football almost appears to be the last kind of a section of society that refuses to accept people for being gay. So I think that is kind of a particularly important And, and, given and, and that, I think this is context. interesting, so to jump in again, but I see that people will see this, oh, you can't come out in football because you'd be treated like this and this. To me, that also seems very... Seem to think football fans have some still some sort of Neanderthals. Yeah, that yeah. we couldn't do that. Yeah. You know, you can come out to rugby, that's fine. You can come out in, in cricket, that's I, fine. I, but I, in football, hey, you're gonna get a rough deal. Is that not a sign that still football fans have viewed have some sort of tugs? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> what I would also say is, um, uh, was it Philip Lamb came out and said, uh, I think it was only about two or three years ago that if a footballer came out as gay, he'd be happy for him, but he'd be treated badly in the changing room. And, you know, Philip Lamb is captain of Barcelona, um, Barcelona uh, Bayern Munich, uh, you're captain of Germany, and he says, you know, if I was gay, I wouldn't necessarily want to come out when I was a footballer. And, you know, I guess, I guess there is a certain level of, you know, uh, locker room sort of thing. How would he be treated by the the crowds? Would he be re- treated negatively? Yeah, I think he probably would. You think so? Yeah, I do. Let's be honest, I think he probably would. Depends where. Uh, no, no, that, that's depends one. Depends how good he is. Uh, if Kieran Tierney came out and said he was gay, would it affect him in terms of how we see him? Well, well, no one coming out as gay would affect us, but would it? Would he have negative? Co- when when Aidan McGeady chose to play for Ireland, I know, I know, it's completely different. But it, it, it's just um, just picking on something. Right, I don't well, know. I don't I, know. Okay, okay. I I, I kind of know where you're coming from, right? We'll take we'll take the, the the example of Tierney, right? I actually think the Green Brigade would absolutely laud them even more than they do just now. Yeah. They would raise them up. And uh, so would, would I. And we, I think it's something that we would champion, and rightly so. And I think it would be great. I think what I also think is, see if you had a, a an openly gay player in the Premier League, um, who was of a certain standard, of a really good player, shall we say. Because if you had somebody who was a squad player, you know, it, it, it probably wouldn't have the same effect. But if you had a real star in the Premier League... Harry Kane. Okay, say, say Harry Kane. 
then I think the first the first inclination of Sky and, and for you know the Premier League would be to sell. Let's let's see how we can cash in on the fact that this guy's the first openly gay football player. Now, would he would they go to some grounds and get um, a hard time? Maybe you know. I think he would probably get some. Hitzelsberger. He only came out literally the day after he retired. He Uh came out as gay because he said that if I came out as gay when I was, uh, you know, actively a professional footballer, I know what I would have got. So yeah, I mean, and I get it. And by the way, this isn't me. This isn't me. Like saying, you know, it's the first person to do it though. And I reckon that you might get some boon at some stadiums, but I think it would dissipate quite quickly because I, I do believe that people would rally and. It would go the same way as racism. There's racists that go to football just now, but they're quietened. You know, you still get racist incidents, but they're quietened. It's there'll be homophobic, uh, homophobic supporters that go to games, but eventually, I reckon it would quieten down. I think it would be a great thing for the game, and I think once the first person did it, it, it would start to become more normal. And it kind of comes back to this, you know, concentrate on the football, you know, and and and. And the political leanings or the past of some players or managers shouldn't really matter because it's about what happens on, on the football court. We, you had a little bit about it when Malky McKay came up and became the performance director. In, in, in Malky McKay? Malky McKay. So I'll, I'll practice my Scottish pronunciations afterwards. But it's that kind of sense of if, if somebody came into Celtic with a certain past... For example, there's there's a discussion going on in Tottenham now in terms of whether they should sign. Um, I probably say this wrong as well. Serge Aurier, who's is like the right back at PSG, who had a few homophobic comments um, a few months ago, and and there's been a, a big discussion whether should Tottenham sign him without him making at least a, a proper apology or a, a, you know a, an acknowledgement of what you know the language he used. And and the wider point then is. Do you, as, as, as a supporter, do you care about the political leanings, the, the past of some players, and so on, or does it just matter what to do on the football pitch? Um, I, I completely do. I come from... Uh, come from. Um, I'm a massive fan of punk music, and um, the whole point of punk is to fight against you know any sort of... Um, you're fighting against the establishment, but you're also making the point that, you know, everyone can be, you know, kind of like what Celtic is, it's about um, everyone being equal, everyone being free and being able to do anything. Um, it's the idea that some everyone deserves a second chance, I get that, but from, from my point of view, I think if you don't sincerely have regret about what you've said from a... You know, I'm mean, a homophobia and homophobic points. If 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 we were linked with a, a player who had said what um, the, the, I don't remember exactly what it was he said, but no, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's been there's been players within the Premier League who've you know made tweets that have been deleted since that have made ridiculously I mean, homophobic. I mean, everyone Le- deserves a second Le- chance, Le- but at the same, for example, yeah. Um, is is that you know you have somebody there with a past if you want to call it that and 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 you know Celtic says there should be a club for all has Lee Griffiths do I think made immense enough for what he's in terms of what he's been singing and do and I, do, I, do I think Lee Griffiths has made has from a 
I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. The Lee Griffiths one's a really hard one, to be fair. Let's give it to Dan then, since he's new here. Well, I was just going to say maybe an e- Lee Griffiths. You've brought up Lee Griffiths. Now, I was going to say maybe an, easy exam- an easier example for us, um, and maybe particularly for, for you two, is maybe Paolo Di Canio. Like, how do you remember Paolo Di Canio? What do you think about Paolo? I mean, he was a great player, right? But, okay, Paolo Di Canio can get to fuck. Right, okay, so there we go. Yeah, Paolo Di Canio is, is, is a fascist. Yeah, yeah. And so is Buffon. And I don't... I, I dislike Buffon. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> He's wearing <laughs> a Juventus top right now. Can we just... But no, Pillow de Cano, we did a podcast about five years ago and we talked about whether... Kind of a, very similar to how do you rate a player in terms of what their beliefs are. And Pillow de Cano came up and uh, we all kind of went because of his ideology. Um, in my mind, what he's done at Celtic is done. I, I don't... I don't uh, done. Going back to Lee Griffiths now, the only dif- the, the main difference I would state between Griffiths and Mackay probably would have been age, because I think Griffiths was a lot younger than Mackay. Um, you know the daftness of youth. Um, I, I don't know if he came out. You know if he was quite contrite about it. I'm not sure. Um, Mackay certainly was when he came out, but. A man of his age, you know, that's that's the difference. You can put it down to him being a daft uh, young boy. Still, I mean, uh, you know, everyone deserves a second chance, I suppose. Throwing this one out there, if he said something else, how would everybody feel about that? Come to Liam, in terms of that proposition, if Celtic could sign a player that could maybe take him to the next level, maybe get us into in the last reaches of the Champions League, but he comes with a very checkered past terms of maybe something he said in the past or his political leanings would you want him would you want success with that player and where would you draw the line in terms of what's acceptable for you or not it's a really kind of a difficult issue I suppose because I would like some kind of a public no apology as such but a kind of a public kind of acceptance that what they had said at that time was was wrong yeah. should, should Celtic a club make you acknowledge that this is a club that have certain beliefs and values for you to play at it? I think, if, at least acknowledge that. I think if the Celtic PR department was worth kind of anything, that if they were going to sign a player that they knew had that kind of a checkered past that you're speaking about, that they would have measures in place to ensure that the player publicly admitted that what he had said at that time, at any given time, was wrong and he now accepts that view. And this is where it comes back to, for me, in terms of, we talked about supporting a football club and why you do it. A lot of it is it's, it's a local institution for many. Uh, for, for many, it's not. But Celtic was, was created in terms of a specific social purpose. Now, there, there's still a lot of, uh, in terms of you know providing for, for people who's not that well off, and there's still a lot of doing that. But should Celtic also then be a, a vehicle for social, social change, like fights against racism, against homophobia, against discrimination against women, and so on, should Celtic actively be that vehicle more than other clubs? And and how important is, is that to you? Well, I think the club, well, it's, you know, football without fans is nothing. I think the club reflects the sport. And like Gal said earlier, uh, you know, we don't just turn up for the 11 guys. But like, that's why we turn up. But it's not those 11 guys on the pitch that we're, that's not all we're turning up for. You know, there's it's more than that. And it's a collective thing. And I think that's just a heart back to way back at the beginning, actually. I think there's a... I think in Britain, anyway, because just from a British perspective, I think there's a there's been an attempt in the last maybe thirty years, and you know, Chris, you mentioned the trade union act, and 
I think there's just a, an attempt to quash any collectivity, like any collective movement, any collective. Everything's about the individual. Everything's about how do I aspire, you know, my life to be what I aspire my life to be, and how do maybe I do best for my family and all. That, but but don't think in a collective sense. And I think there's a there's a breakdown of you know football kind of isn't allowed to do that anymore. But yeah. if it wanted to, then the fans are the vehicle because the fans are what why the club began, you know, there wouldn't have been any fans at the, if there wouldn't have been a club if there were no fans at the start and there wouldn't be a club if there were no fans now. So it has, the club can only reflect the people that are going to watch it and that, you know, that are supporting the club. Can, can I make a, a, a kind of point? <clears throat> obviously when, um, you know, you talk about people changing and, you know, second chances, obviously when uh, Mark Waters signed for Celtic, uh, signed for, for, for Rangers, there was a horrendous amount of racist abuse um, kind of levelled at him and that we can't escape that we can't see that that didn't happen because it did happen um, but we've learned and we've changed and we've evolved and we know that that's completely unacceptable and inappropriate and we know why and that, that completely changes and that that's you know as much as you say about you know bringing in a player who has maybe done something that again it comes down to whether they actually whether it's within them, but from from the, from a fan's perspective, you know, if you look at how certain fans of all clubs reacted and you know, kind of uh, treated themselves in the, the kind of eighties and stuff, we've all kind of moved on and learned from that. And someone like Lee Griffiths, this is going to sound maybe I don't know, but I think he was maybe caught up in a moment of just football euphoria. I, I, do I think that Lee Griffiths is a racist and actually sees people differently? I don't. I just think he was a daft young boy who hopefully has learned from it. There was a couple of instances. There was a tweet, I believe, as well. Oh, okay. I can't remember the content of it, but um, but so man, it's just Celtic. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know what age Griffiths was, but I'm assuming he was really quite young. Um, doesn't excuse it, but people make mistakes. More mistakes when they're young. But, but should yeah. Celtic and its fans try and achieve something through through the club in terms of social change? Is, is that should that be a priority? I don't know how much they can uh, achieve social change because let's be perfectly honest. In Glasgow, if you support one club, they're always going to be divisive. Do you know, if you're talking wider social change, I don't think that's possible. Um, I think they should just represent what uh, you know. What yeah, what they should represent some of the the the. the the foundations that the club were built on, you know. Um, I think that's as much as they can do. I love their charity work. I think that's that's really good as well. But as a wider force, incorporating people, it, it, it wouldn't happen solely because they're a, they're, they come from Celtic. And, and it's always going to be divisive, no matter what. Even if, even if you're a Rangers fan who shares the same political beliefs, you're not going to, you know, on, on any sort of scale, you're not definitely not going to take become involved with the Green Brigade, and that's that's just the way it is. I think it's um, it's an interesting point in terms of also maybe circling back to to the treatment of football fans and and how they're viewed. Now, to my knowledge, Scotland must be one of the only countries in the world that have a specific act that if you show a set of behavior which is very not even defined it's defined as offensive not it doesn't even have to be offensive to anybody in the ground it has to be reasonably seen as offensive if you do that behavior at the football ground or in the pub watching a football game you can be prosecuted 
if you did the same thing at a rugby game, you you that act wouldn't apply to you. So, so Liam, I, I know you've been active in this a lot in terms of the offensive behavior, football act, and in in terms of Scottish politics, Scottish politics in terms of the legislation, it, is it? It seems to almost be an absurd piece of legislation. Is that reflective of how football fans are actually viewed still by the establishment in Scotland? And by establishment, I mean the media and the politicians. To a degree, yes, and. Also, to a degree, you've, I think casting your mind back to when the Offensive Behaviour Act was brought in, it mm-hmm. was brought in on the back of this so-called shame game that it was dubbed um, in the media, and it was also happened to be right before a Scottish parliamentary election. So there was an element of electioneering in there as well from Salmond at the time, uh, and the SNP since have just dug their heels in yeah. uh, on the issue. But the Offensive Behaviour Act does two kind of a aspects to it. The first is that a lot of people say that the intentions are good. Well, for me, actually, no, the intentions are only good. The intention for me was blatant electioneering. And the other aspect of it is is that for a legal point of view, the act itself is it, it doesn't stand up in court, and that's been proven the case time after time after time. But it still seems to be a vote winner. I, 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 I you know, the SNP is a lot of thing. I don't think they're stupid. Well, some of them might be. But in terms of, I think they still see us, if you can push something that says football fans are bad, look what we're doing with them, it's still a vote winner in, in, loads parts of, in a large part of the electorate. It's how you, it's how you, answer, you ask the question. Do you like trouble at football or whatever? Mm-hmm. No. Well, there we go. We've got an act to, to sort it. I mean, if you break it down, do you like an act that criminalises predominantly young males for... Um, doing what young males have done watching football games for decades no it's, it's, it, that's, that's the thing that, that annoys me most about it is it criminalises a lot of young guys who um, even if it doesn't stand up in court as Liam says have that hanging over their head for a long period of time yeah absolutely and he's, I think he's absolutely right I think it was political opportunism I think that the S- whatever you think of the SNP, I think that there's probably large swathes of the party that know it's it, it's it's a terrible piece of legislation, but it's they seems to be digging their heels in. It's like they're really reluctant to say. And the thing is, as well, the problem with it is any, anything happens. You know, the recent stuff that, that happens at Celtic Celtic Park. You know, where the um, the first game of last season when there was the furore over the the. I can't even remember. But you know what I'm talking about. Mm. Um, the um, it's dead easy for them to go out and go ah ah. You see, it's there's still stuff happening that we don't find particularly tasteful. This law uh, um, helps us be able to act quickly on these measures, but it's unnecessary. See anti-social behaviour at football. Prosecute it with anti-social behaviour laws. Mm-hmm. Bringing in a specific law for what, a team sport in Scotland is just. It's just crazy, and I do think it will be overturned at some point. Um, but uh, you know, the fact that it's been here for what six years or now is it's terrible. And, and I, I think that's I've only really felt like going to football games in in, in the UK. I, I still remember going for some reason. I went to a, a Leeds Stockport game a few years ago as as, a, as an away fan, as a Stockport fan, and just the treatment you get in a random game in, in the English League One. The treatment you get from police in terms of having cameras in your faces, a very aggressive stance against you, 
for example, if, if if you went to any event in the Commonwealth Games, you'd have volunteers high-fiving you, you'd have police officers being cheery as anything, everybody was set up just to have, you know, to support you and have you fine. If you go to a football game, especially as an away fan, you are treated as a criminal, as a, somebody who might do something criminal from the, the point you come in. And do you think, Dan, is, is that something that you think then shapes the way football fans behave towards police and in terms of how it, it basically if, if you treat somebody a certain way they're more likely to react in a certain way yeah well exactly i, I mentioned this in my article as well i don't think censorship ever works I, I think all it breeds is a sort of undercurrent of tension that's worse than if like another point a point that i made in my article was see if we didn't have the offensive behavior at football act and if we didn't think uefa were going to fine us for the banner I don't think we'd still be talking about it. I think a few people might have, you know, it's like author by relocation, you know, they put people at the game probably didn't get, like, there was hardly anyone, I'm guessing, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm guessing, there was hardly anyone at the game that looked at that banner at the Linfield game and said, oh, that's that offends me, you know, I'm a dead offended by that. It's when they put it on the front of the Daily Mail or whatever the next day, and it's not intended for them, it's like, it's like showing Pulp Fiction on the side of a primary school. It's like, you know, it's not intended for that, for that location. It's, it's, it's like um, when Evil Dead 2 was banned... No, 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 because yeah, yeah, because evil, nasties, yeah, yeah, um, and driller killer and all that stuff. They they banned them because oh, these could cause offence, and this is like really offensive. And then you watch it, and you're like, this isn't in no way offensive. Mm-hmm. But the the the, the absolute outrage yeah. that was caused by it made more of a storm than the actual films themselves. Yeah, the furore. It actually, I think it generates more. Maybe not to trivialise it, but it generates more hassle. I don't think I don't think it would have been talked about for ages if Celtic. I mean, I think I don't think Celtic would have banned the Green Brigade if it wasn't for UEFA potentially coming down hard. And if UEFA didn't have those those rules where they could potentially fine or shut parts of the stadium, Celtic probably wouldn't have bothered. I don't think, and and I don't think we'd be talking about it. I think we'd have maybe seen it the next day, and that would be it. And just a quick point on that, we got. Um tweet from Martin Friel, our friend Martin Friel, in terms of saying that political parties can pay for advertising boards at football games, or S&P mm-hmm. does it at Fur Park, yeah. but fans can't have political statements in, in ground, it, you know, which, which is nuts. Uh, so do you think, Lehman, in terms of that, is it does it come back to the money? In terms of if, <laughs> if, if I was saying, if you, if you didn't punish you, and if you somehow can sell you know, Republican banners, and that would be good for business. You think anybody would have a problem with it? I think it comes back to both issues that we were speaking about, actually, earlier on in terms of the commercialisation, but also the kind of a narrow field of what you would describe as being accepted taste. That the SNP feel that they can, not, not just the SNP and Fairness Labour do it as well, and there's other political parties as well that put banners up in stadiums, but it's particularly relevant with the SNP when they're the ones that's brought through the legislation. And going back to what Dan was saying there about the, we probably wouldn't be talking about it and that nobody in the stadium would be offended by the banners. You, the absurdity of the Offensive Behaviour Act is that nobody does actually have to be offended. All they have to prove is that a reasonable person, however you would define that, may have been offended, yeah. and that would be enough to warrant a charge. I, I think the example in one of the hearings in Parliament was that if you sing Flower of Scotland, you know, Scotland's recognised national anthem, at a certain match, maybe against a certain set of fans, you can be prosecuted. <laughs> under the Offensive Behaviour Football Act because that can be seen as offensive and you uh, agitize and you know uh, provocative. Um, and maybe like maybe the last point in terms of, of the politics sides, the media 
because um, <laughs> I think often, and we've talked a lot about the media on, on the podcast as well, but I think the media is often very keen to at least they want to see everything maybe in in, in, in a sectarian view and then maybe see that they're very keen on that both sides is as bad. So any sort of political um, show is automatically, automatically seen as as bad it shouldn't belong to football i think the best example is you know and against the game against um Hapoel last season with uh, you know the, the palestine flags coming up and you, the, i mean the, the <laughs> honestly the, the the journalists had those articles written already and there is now poor saying constraint on football blah 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 and for, for to have that mindset as a journalist were you supposed to scrutinize things? And, and your first reaction isn't that Celtic will be banned for this. That's a crazy rule. It's like, you know the rules. You know, you can't put flags up at the football game. You should be punished. And I, I'll call out Tom English on this because he was particularly bad on, on Twitter for this point. And then slowly when this whole thing was turned around to, you know, a charity drive and, and raising hundreds and thousands of money, a lot of people in media still couldn't bring themselves to say like, oh, actually... That can, that political statements at, at the football ground can have a, a good side to it. So, I mean, in terms of yourself as a Liam, in terms of, and, and Dan as well, the media's role in terms of how to report the Offensive Behaviour Act and the treatment of fans. Now, especially in the sports media, football fans are the bread and butter for, for a lot of, especially tabloids and stuff, but they still want to have this view where you are very, very eager to have a go at football fans. I think the point you make about the, the articles being pre-written uh, last year in terms of the Hapoel Bersheva game and the Palestine flags, it was within minutes of the, of, the, of the flags going up that they had these articles already there and on their sites. But when the narrative kind of changed, their reaction to it didn't seem to, to change at all either. They still stuck by that line. And I think... It, you mentioned Tom English, but he wasn't the only one as well. The sports media in general, for me, don't highlight enough the Offensive Behaviour Act and the negative impact it's having on crowds and on fan kind of a experience at games in Scotland. I think that part of the reason that they don't do that is because it would involve a conversation about the content. I think it would involve a conversation then about the issue in, in, in Palestine and about you know all the different things that that football fans you know may want to express, may want to talk about. It's about content. I, I don't think you know if if they were just saying stuff that was mindless, then I don't think that they would um, they would they would sort of run away from the issue, but they do run away from the issue because it's a pertinent issue. They know they don't want to take a stand on it. I think that's. I think, it, I think that's the, the problem. So, so Manny, is, is football journalists, it's going to sound a bit flippant, proper journalists in that way? Because football, you, I mean, for me, you should be a journalist for, first and foremost. And that should be about critical, investigative, and not just taking everything uh, an organization or a club take and, 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 and run with that and, and, and a certain view. Journalism should, in a sense, be anti-establishment. It often isn't. But in terms of especially the football journalism in, in Scotland and, and Glasgow, it seems to be, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's hard to describe it. In, in terms of, they, they seem very keen on trying to be... Can I jump in for a second? Go, then. See for, a, see for a, um, someone who wasn't born in Glasgow with no agenda, how do you see it? I, I I think it's probably something that is replicated elsewhere as well in, in terms of football journalism. But I think there's a distinct like maybe because of the way football is structured in Scotland that 
I think you have more journalists in England. David Cohn is one, uh, for example, who takes a lot more investigative look at what's happening. It's not just a, a, a ranger's texting and so on as well, but I think it was quite... I think it's a very good example in terms of when the whole ranger's texting broke. It didn't come from the media, and the journalists who's probably been talking most about this and investigating it in the most critical way has come from outside of Scotland, especially Channel 4 and now Alex Thompson. So... So, Mario, what is it with the football media in, in Scotland that, you know, what, what's your thought about, thoughts about it, really? Um, I've never taken it seriously, so... No, I haven't. I mean, it's... Uh, I, you know, when I was younger, I mean, when I wanted to read about football, I never really wanted... You know, you knew what was happening at Celtic because you were a Celtic fan, but if I wanted to read about football when I was a kid, I would buy... Football Italia magazine or 442 or something like that because you would read about the game, yeah, game at a wider level because, you know, a bit more in-depth, you know. Journalism in Scotland, football journalism in Scotland is it's just the lowest common denominator stuff. The one thing that gets me, I don't, I don't read The Sun, The Record, nothing, I don't read any of it, I don't listen to Super Scoreboard, even when we have a great result or even when Rangers have a... Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Even when uh, Rangers have a bad result, we have a great result. Um, the the only time I might listen to it is I might put Radio Scotland or something on on the way back from a game because I'm in the car. I don't I don't listen to it, so I, I can't really I can't really comment on what it's like just now. But the one thing that's always bugged me about it when there was less media avenues, you know, we didn't have online and you had to kind of listen to the radio when I was younger was. They used to ramp up the mm. between me uh, uh, Celtic and Rangers. They would ramp things up. Oh, the, you know this is the this derby. You know it's hatred. It's passionate. And then when whenever something happened, they would stand back and tap as if their coverage in the lead up to it had had no effect on yeah. the atmosphere around the game. And they continue to do that. Well, mm. I think I think because I don't read it or listen to it. But I assume so. You know, they they build up this the the the, the derby and the. the you know the hatred and the the divide, and then they stand back and they sneer and wash their hands. And it also seems that if there is an incident on the day between Rangers and Celtic, it's old firm violence. It could have happened miles away, but <laughs> if there's any sort of way of tying violence or bad behaviour to football, it still seems to happen. Graham Spears um, talked about how um, look. I don't want to, I don't want, that. this is awful, this is all awful, you know, the, the sectarianism connected with the, inverted commas, old firm, um, it's awful, but at the same time, I mean, I don't want it to be sanitised, I don't want it to be sanitised, I like the fact there's a bit of hate there, you know, and Neil Lennon, you know, he does his thing and we all know what Neil's doing, don't we? Hold on a minute, what the fuck is Neil doing? What is Neil? What is Neil Lennon doing that deserves him to get pulled up in front of the media and be called? Or the, you know, Hibs went to Ibrox. They won. Neil Lennon reacted to the fact that fifty thousand people called him a take bastard and hated him and told X, Y, and Z, and you know, you're this, you're that. And he turns around and he cups his ears and he does the, you know, he does a sign where it's you know, get up, you. And the fact is. Um, Neil, um, um, Graham Spears was like, you know, Neil Lennon went too far. It was too far and it was too much. And then within about five minutes, he says, but I mean, I don't want the old firm game to be sanitised. I think that exact view is kind of going back to Celtic and the Green Brigade and Celtic kind of taking 
the good stuff, I guess, like the, what they would see is the good stuff, the imagery of the Green Brigade and using it, but then when it goes out with their interests, or, or we could say beliefs, but I personally believe it interests financial and, and corporate. I, I think when it, when it oversteps that mark, then they, then they can turn around and say, oh, well, we need to please UEFA, we need to please the SFA, the Scottish Government, the police. Uh, and and then is there an inconsistency there because they're happy to take the good, but and I think that's illustrated in that in that gate. Obviously, Graham Spears isn't associated with Celtic, but you know I think that's a similar attitude of of contradiction. You know, I think you, 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 if you want the good stuff, then then you need to take the stuff that you don't agree with. And I think in terms of like trying to wrap up this section in terms of of the football and, and politics, Liam. I mean, you wrote for us in, in this issue. I'd, hopefully, you'll come back. Nine, at 90minutesin.com soon available in PDF <laughs> uh, <laughs> hopefully you, you'll come back and, and write more for us in terms of politics but especially when it comes to now the situation between the Green Brigade and the Celtic board where does Celtic go from here where does the Green Brigade go from here what would you like to see from both parts I think there needs to be an element of compromise for both uh, actually I don't think it is quite as simple as saying the Green Brigade are always right and yeah. the club are always wrong I think there is a kind of happy medium to be found in there and I, I did mention in the article that without commenting on the content of the banners I think what what it allowed the media to do <coughs> was that focus was always going to be on that rather than the non-event that was happening on the pitch because Celtic were clearly a class above who we were playing and the Green Brigade kind of fell into a trap almost mm-hmm. and that they gave them the oxygen that they were craving to, to write the pieces that they already had, probably pre-written as soon as Linfield was drawn. Uh, but what really kind of frustrated me was that a lot of the feel-good factor that was brung kind of through yeah. for last season and Brendan talking about the Holy Trinity and talking about how when the fans, the supporters, uh, the supporters, the team and the, the management come together that it can be a really, really powerful force and it just felt as if that kind of disintegrated almost right at the start of the season and it, it was that in particular that kind of arrived me a wee bit you know that a good feeling of it. but I think there needs to be an element of compromise for both sides it's great to see them back uh, I think they made a big big difference in the Astana game uh, and we'll probably see it again on Saturday against St Johnson So Manny <laughs> <laughs> um, as you said there the Green Brigade uh, I, I mean the treatment of the people you know, around the Green Brigade as well did the Celtic board overstep the mark this time and do you think that was deliberate uh, setting down a marker, or do you just think it was incompetence? Uh, I think it was handled badly. Um, yep. The point Liam makes is you, you, you don't need to come down and say the board are great and the, the Green Brigade are... The board are terrible and the Green Brigade are great. The Linfield banners really weren't their best thought-out banner. You know, that's what I'll say. It's the reaction to it um, that... I thought was completely uh, disproportionate, and it's the point about hanging them out to dry. They they, they just basically right, these are all banned. Um, you know, there's people that you know I believe were arrested as a result of it, and yep. it just it was almost just like right, no, that's it. You are that, that blah blah blah. You're getting out. You're not coming back. It was completely disproportionate to what they done. They could have come out and said, you know. A more proportionate response. I'm not even going to suggest what they could have come out and said. But it's what I'm quite glad about now is they're back, and I do think that there will be uh, moves to kind of bring back a, a more um, conciliatory, I can't get the word out, you know what I mean, relationship between the two of them because the club aren't daft, they know what they bring to the stadium. And um, 
they know that Celtic Park's a better place to go with them in place, you know. I just wish they would temper their reaction to them. That doesn't mean give them a complete free reign because What happens if the, the Green Brigade but, come out with a massive sign that says sack the board? What do you mean? I don't know, I just <laughs> it was something from the eighties, wasn't it? <laughs> Um, but once if they I came think out, would disagree, but I, I think no, I would think they would support their, 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 their entitlement to free speech on that I, matter. If the Green Brigade came out with a anti-board movement in terms of like um, you know banners and signs and a very anti-board sack, it, well, put like, it this way, see if and mo- moving towards a, a fan-based. Um, Kind of, we want to own the club. We are the, we are Celtic. We want to own the club. If they started coming out with that, how do you think the the, the board would react to that? They wouldn't react to it because if they clamped down on them, I think the general support would rally around the Green Brigade. Whereas if the general support, if they clamped down on them, yeah, if, if if they hammered down on them, I do think so. I think that if the, a lot of the other supporters would maybe go, ah, oh, no, we don't agree with you, and if the board just let them get on with it, then. You know, I I I I I just think it would kind of be a a, a Green Brigade thing, but I, I I do think that if they kind of clamp down on them and hammer down on them again, well, maybe not all the support, but a significant proportion of the support would side with them. I'm gonna to come to Dan for a final point, but first, Liam, in terms of if you think the Green Brigade and the and the board come to another uh, another, you know, where they start <laughs> fighting again. And if if Celtic fans seems to feel they have to you know pick a side, do you think there's a lot to do with the demographic in terms of age and the background of people and how they view and where would you support the board and the Green Brigade? Do you think there's a specific demographic difference and what would happen then? Largely, but there would also be a crossover if that kind of makes sense. Cause I think it does kind of polarise the support uh, in a way that probably no other issue does um, actually. But I think what. The board and, and the Green Brigade statement right after it was that we accept responsibility for this. We acknowledge that if we want to be an ultras group and we want to display these, then there will be ramifications and consequences for our actions. But the board banned everybody in that section, including mm. non-members of the Green Brigade and people who weren't actually anywhere near yeah. the stadium, which is kind of aware for me that kind of indiscriminate nature of banning 900 people collectively uh, was the wrong approach for the board. Agree. Dan, for you, just speaking for yourself, if you had to choose between a Green Brigade that kept pushing the boundaries, uh, maybe got into a little bit of trouble, maybe even got the club and UEFA ban, or a Green Brigade that just sanitized it almost completely, just stayed within acceptable limits, what would you choose? I think that I think that there is a, there is a choice between do we want to specifically with my article do we want to adhere to UEFA's rules? I mean, I. I outlined, I'm not going to go into it there, obviously, but at the end, but I, I outlined, outlined in my article why I don't think UEFA, similar to the Offensive Behaviour Act, why I don't think that they have the the kind of, I don't think that, the, that they have the right to tell people what they should and should not say, regardless of whether it's their own competition. I do think we have a decision to make over what do we prioritise? Do we prioritise getting to play in the Champions League or do we prioritise our sort of freedom of speech and things like that? Personally, I'm inclined to prioritise our freedom of speech and um and and not just I'm not just falling on the side of the Green Brigade because I did didn't totally agree with their banner. I didn't really see the need for it. But you know, I I think that I think that football has to be somewhere where people can express views and I think it scares me that that different sections of society are being clamped down like that and I think football is one of the last bastions where people can 
try to express their views, and it scares me that it's being clamped down upon. So, yeah. and here at the night, Minnie Cynic, we fully support that. Uh, <laughs> I think that should be the last word in terms of the politics side of things. Um, Dan, did you have any? Did you read any of the other articles? Hopefully, yeah. No, a- I, any favorite among them? Um, well, you mentioned the Villarreal, and I enjoyed that, but I, I enjoyed Matt's article as well, and mainly because the MLS is a huge gap, and that was the promotion relegation MLS um, article, and um, it was it was quite a, a novel. Firstly, to, to read, but I thought you went into a lot of detail, and it taught me a lot about the MLS because that's a real gap in my football knowledge. It's just something that I've not really. Okay, I keep looking at New York City this season because they look like Man City, but they don't quite play like Man City, even with Man City are. Rotten. But M- I, I enjoyed that. The MLS is a gap in my football knowledge, and I'm quite happy for it to stay that <laughs> way. <laughs> I do think if, if you should read one piece about MLS, I think Matt's piece is, is a good one. It's a long one, it's, it's three and a half thousand words. Uh, but what I really liked about Matt's piece is that it's one of those where I came in with into it with one set of opinion. I'd probably come out the other way uh, with an opinion I didn't think I'll have is that. It kind of makes sense not having promotion and relegation in, in US soccer. Um, but have a read of that. Uh, Gal, did you read anything uh, from the supplement? Any favourites? Um, I read it all. I am, I am 90 minutes in it, dickheads. So, no. Um, what I re- I, the, the thing with um, what, what Matt's um, article, which I, I, I read and I enjoyed, um, it kind of, we got some kind of, kind of, Negative feedback on yeah. Twitter, um, which was good because it was you can. Yeah, I I didn't realize how sensitive that topic was in American soccer. So if you want to have a go read of Matt's article and look at the comments underneath, which are quite colorful uh, in terms of that. But yeah, apparently it's that's that's kind of what we call the civil war of American soccer as well. So, and you know we like a bit of uh, hostility in the in the Twitter. That's C O L O R, colourful as well. Yeah, no one asked you. Um, the point is, uh, but no, not like them. The, the supplement that um, Christian has, has has been producing has been terrific. Um, you know, hats off to to Keith as well. Not not as much as Christian, but you know, go, go, God bless Keith. Um, but no, um, Liam and um, Dan have, have done terrific articles. Ninety minutes cynic dot com um, is the, the the website. If you check it out, you can see. Um, we're on our fourth, number four, um, and there's so many interesting articles. If you like Michael Van Basten, that's the that's the one I did. They would remember Michael Van Basten. Yeah, they, they they probably would know who. These Michael young pups on the podcast. I will say this is edition number four, and the last piece you did write about Marco Van Basten, which is very good, was an issue number one. So you, 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 <laughs> yeah. you kind of do one yeah. now. It was uh, a weak link in that edition, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. I want to mention the last two articles as well. Ryan Clark, uh, our Irish football correspondent, has got an interview with uh, Bisto Flood. Flood? Flood? A gal isn't the best at pronouncing Irish names either. But, Bisto uh, Flood. Bisto Flood. Flood? Flood? No? Flood? 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 Like Willow Flood? Hey! Alright, point Tessa. Bisto Flood. Check it out. And. And also, uh, last one by Patrick Solich, uh, which has his own column about stories from a reserve team left back. I think you should check that out as well, Gal. Yeah. Um, so it's um, at Ryan uh, JC. Um, R- Ryan's been writing for us for, for quite a while. I remember when he when he was a plucky young lad and he came to me and he says, look, Gal, look. Um, give I, me a I, chance, I, I, Gal. I, just give me a chance. And uh, No, t- 
terrific stuff. Uh, Patrick Solich, um, PJ Solich um, on Twitter as well. Um, thank you to Daniel and uh, Liam. Terrific. Thanks for having us. Great tea, great chat, great biscuits. As where, where can we where can we get you on Twitter? My Twitter handle is at Liam McLaughlin, and it's McLaughlin with an A-N rather than an I-N. And my Twitter handle is at the DJ McGowan. Daniel There's is only one the most hipster person I've ever met in my entire life, including myself, so that's a big thing. Uh, Liam, you're the most uh, socialist person I've ever met in my life, with the exception of Chris Armani. <laughs> you guys could be a tag team. Uh, the socialites and oh, all that makes you sound like no, that, fancy. That makes you sound. Uh, yeah, yeah. Give yeah. up now. Give up now. Is this going to be a historic moment in terms of like given you know uh, Blair and Brown? Is this going to be the, the you know the coming together of the Scottish left? You think is it finally going to unite? Is this going to start here tonight? You, are you trying to dig out another political point? <laughs> 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 no, um, no, 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 no. I wasn't saying no to that, but no. Um, I'm just going to jump in. You haven't pointed to me, but you don't need to. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for hosting. Guys, enjoyed your input tonight. Fantastic. Wonderful. We are the 90 minutes in it, and uh, we'll speak to you down the road. Yeah, no, you've not done him yet. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Christian Wolf, yeah. <laughs> no, no, Sir Manny absolutely nailed it. But no, no, Christian, it's been terrific. Um, so we're going to do a podcast. You can take that mic there. Um, we're going to do a podcast, uh, a supplement podcast, at least once a month. Well, we'll do one after every issue. Uh, so, yeah, at least every other month. Uh, yeah. I think we'll do that. We'll have. To, but as you say, if you want to write for the supplement, 90minutesinit.com or go to Twitter. Yeah, like just DM us on Twitter. And, you know, if, if you're good, great. If you're not, you're going to be fucking patched. Um, but uh, terrific. Thanks for getting involved, um, Liam and uh, Dan. And uh, who knows? You might get in rotation of the pod. Probably not. But. Um, I don't know if you know much about football. He's wearing a Smith's t-shirt and he's talking about politics. Fucking, how good is Lustig? Terrific. Um, no, but thanks for everyone for getting involved. Um, we are the 90 Minute Cynic and we'll speak to you down the road. <laughs>